Hello. Good, good evening, everybody. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Hello. How are you doing? Great. <laughs> We're having a good time this evening at church, and we are going to do a new study which I don't feel like we're going to get done with tonight. I just feel like it's going to be maybe a, a two-part, maybe even a three-part. I said with the demonology study that it was going to be just like a one-lesson thing, but it turned into a three-lesson thing. So I don't want to rush through this topic. It's a good one. And it is titled Practical Sanctification and the Keswick Movement. Keswick. The Keswick. As in Kazakhstan? As in spelt K-E-S-W-I-C-K and... Keswick is not how you pronounce it. It's, it's English or British, and it's it's Keswick. So, anyways, uh, we're gonna talk about the Keswick movement more next time, but I'll introduce you to a little bit of it tonight. But we're gonna talk mainly about sanctification, uh, something that I've been studying recently. I'm going through this book that was given to me by a friend of mine that I met on Facebook, and he does ministry in Ukraine. But he's part of this group of theologians. They're part of the, let's see, the International, see if I can get the name right, the International Society for Biblical Hermeneutics, and he's the editor for their books that they publish. Um, he's got one out, they have one out about dispensationalism, which he sent me, and it's really good. I'll pull from that on some uh, Wednesday night studies, I think, and then he's got this one, it's Current Issues in Soteriology. Soteriology is a fancy word for salvation. So it's like a study of salvation. So this book has tons of really good articles about um, salvation, sanctification. Uh, it's from a free grace perspective. And so what I passed out to y'all just a little bit ago is part of one of the articles in the book that I've been studying this week. And it has to do whether or not sanctification is something that we do of our own effort or something that we do by passively trusting in Christ and dwelling on his grace because there's there's this kind of this controversial opinion among free grace people when it comes to justification they're united you know it's free it's a matter of passively receiving the gift of Jesus uh the gift of eternal life that he offers us and it's not based on works it's not based on commitment it's just receiving a gift and they all agree on that and they believe in eternal security so they agree on the essential idea there. But when it comes to how this is fleshed out after you get saved, there's a difference of opinion. Some people would say, all right, well, you're saved by grace, but sanctification is by works. So getting saved is effortless. Jesus does it. But sanctification, that's when you put in your time. And then you have the other viewpoint, which is what I'm going to represent tonight and with a caveat or two. Uh, but the idea is to grow in your faith. The goal is not to force it. Okay, It's not to try harder. It's not to do better. It's not to you know keep a more thorough list of things to accomplish and and just be more um, be more organized in the way you manage your time so you can be a, a better Christian on a daily basis. It's not about things to do. It's about a savior to know. And so we're going to talk about the difference there. Um, I, I feel like people on both sides, sometimes they sound like they're saying the exact same thing, but it's just an emphasis rather, not in my mind, a huge disagreement. It's just a, a different perspective. One perspective seems to focus more on self-reliance. You know, when I'm becoming more like Jesus in my Christian walk, 
Is it more like, all right, grit your teeth and push through, all right? Mm -hmm. It's going to be hard. Soldier on. Or is it more of you need to spend more time in prayer, just communing with God and reflecting on his grace. Don't forget where you've come from. You're nothing without him. You're, you know, you're a branch in the vine or of the vine, but the vine's the one who's producing the fruit. You're just bearing it, right? You're not the one producing fruit. He produces it through you. So again, it's just a different emphasis. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to look at that tonight because a lot of Christians experience uh, spiritual defeat because they think, all right, well, I'm saved, but now it's all on me. And they think, okay, well, the love, the, the grace, it kind of ends once you get saved in a sense, like, okay, you're brought into the family, but he just kind of pulls you out of the rapids of, you know, of sin. He saves you and he sets you on the land. He says, okay, right. Here's a list of things to go. do yeah. off you go, you know, yeah. and that's not the way to live the Christian life. Because if you try that, you're going to experience defeat. And we're going to look at some places where Paul talks about this. So anyways, before we get started, let's begin with prayer and then we'll jump right into it. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for this time that we have together. It's a small group tonight, but I know we have people who are listening to us. We pray, God, that you'll bless everyone in this room. Bless me as I teach. And I pray, God, you'll bless everybody that's listening. I ask that you will be with all of our burdens and help us, Lord, as we grow closer to you and as we become progressively more sanctified to not rely upon ourselves and our own strength but to be filled with the Holy Spirit, constantly recalling, constantly remembering of, you know, this grace that we received when we were first saved and we were first justified and having that at the forefront of our mind all the time. That's the key to victory. And I pray that that's something we will do every day and rejoice in that. So Lord, be with all of our unspoken needs and bless our time. And we ask all these things in Jesus name. Amen. amen. Okay. So we're going to look at, to start with a bunch of scriptures. Okay, a bunch. Now, the reason that I'm doing this is because I want everybody who's listening to realize mm. that this is not just, you know, an abstract discussion. It is based on scripture. And before you can even talk about the different views of theology that men have come up with, mm. we need to look at God's word. Okay. Right. And and that's something that there ha there have been times where I have focused more on this person said that, this person says this, instead of just looking at scripture. So we're going to start in Romans chapter six, and this is a really important text because Paul has already discussed up to this point, justification by grace through faith. I mean, he's made it clear as day, but he starts talking about the Christian life, which obviously sanctification deals with the Christian life once you've been saved. So let's see what he says in Romans six, one through 12. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin, for he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Now those last two verses there, verse 11 and 12, there are the key verses, I think. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin. So he's talked about our position. We've been taken out of sin. Um, the position that we once had was that of condemned sinners. Uh, we're dead to that. We're dead to the old man, okay? While we still struggle with the flesh, we are now identified as sons of God, daughters of God. We are part of the family. We have been baptized by the Holy Spirit, regenerated. We have a new self in the Lord. Mm. And that is the key to living for the Lord. In verse 11, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead unto sin, which means you are dead unto sin. He's already made that clear. In your position, sin no longer has a hold on you, but you have to reckon yourself dead to sin in order to have victory. And that's what verse 12 goes into. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. You can reign over sin in your life, in your practical experience, if you first reckon yourself dead to sin. So the key to overcoming sin in your life is to constantly go back to where you were. I was in my sin. I was spiritually dead. Now I am dead to death, <laughs> interestingly. And I am mm. now alive unto God through Jesus I've experienced this resurrection, so I have power to overcome sin in my life. So the key is always going back to the victory we already have in Jesus. And I think that as we continue to look at these verses, you're going to see this theme that comes across again and again. Put grace at the forefront of your mind. Mm. Okay. A lot of times when people, when they want to have a life pleasing to God, it's this is my goal. I want to be this. And, and this is what God expects of me. And this requires effort and work. And he's done so much for me, so I've got to do something for him now. And while that may be motivated by good desire to please the Lord, it's a little bit arrogant mm -hmm. under the surface. Because what you're assuming is, all right, well, I was saved by Jesus. I needed him to do that for me. But now I can do this on my own. Mm. And you can't do it on your own. And so Paul's saying, reckon yourself dead to sin. Go back to where you were before you were dead, incapable of saving yourselves, and that's what you need to constantly remind yourself of, that you were completely unable to, or, uh, completely unable to live a life for the Lord, but through the power of Christ, through the power of his grace, um, you now have the ability to rule over sin in your life. So you can't, you can't say, all right, well, we, we continue, um, or we, we come to a certain point through grace and faith, and then we cease to have things given to us, blessings received by us through grace and faith. And then we move on to the works. Okay. So there's like this switch. Okay. We, we come so far through grace and faith and now we start working. Okay. Now that's not to say that works are not part of this. I'm going to clarify in a minute. It's just to say that it can't be based on works. Okay. So the way I, you know, as I'm trying to describe, um, for myself and for those who are listening, as I was reading this article, and this article, by the way, if you're interested in it, um, I'm pretty sure you could probably find this online. Um, I know you can find his teaching online. His name's Dennis Roxer, and he's currently a pastor down in Duluth, Georgia, so not too far away from here. And so he's a free grace guy, and he's an exceptional preacher. And so I'd encourage you to look up um, his article on this, which has to do with sanctification. If you just type in his name in sanctification, you'll probably find a wealth of resources. But um, as I was trying to understand what he was saying in his article, I, I came up with this statement, sanctification involves works, but it's not based on them. 
for the believer's justification is the foundation of our sanctification. And so if you were to imagine this as a diagram, a lot of people would, would look at it horizontally. So you got justification, that's getting saved, getting forgiven, and that's not by works. It's by faith. Well, good. You got that right. But then they would draw a line horizontally to the next step in life, and they'd have the word sanctification. And then in the parentheses right there, they would have works. So it'd be like faith, boom, works. So it's like, it's by grace at first, you know, you're eternally secure. You don't have to worry about that anymore, but the rest of it's all on you. The other view would have justification as like the foundation. Okay. So it's underneath and it's by grace through faith. And then built upon that would be sanctification. So while sanctification does involve works, it's faith applied to every area of your life, not just to being forgiven of your sins. It's ultimately based on your justification, which is in turn based on grace. So it's like there's that disconnect in some people's mind that we, we just think we move on to works land mm. after we've been brought out of grace land, but we should never in our minds leave grace land. Elvis? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay, good. Thanks. Walked away for <laughs> we a like, second. We back. like Elvis. You're talking about uh, Elvis. I didn't intend for that reference, but you know, we should never leave Thank that sphere of grace that we were brought into when we got saved. Okay, so let's keep reading some verses that continue to explain this, or rather, uh, that show us the consequences of not mm. having grace at the forefront of your mind. Let's look at Romans 7, 15. This is Paul talking about his Christian experience. And yes, this is after... Paul was saved. I think this was probably soon after he got saved, before he returned from um, Arabia. And, uh, Say that he, again, I'm sorry. So Paul, for about two years right. after he was saved, he went to Arabia, yep. and he came back to Damascus, and that's where it picks up in the book of Acts. It don't really talk about his time in so, Arabia, but he mentions it in Galatians. So in, in Romans 7, if we're trying to pinpoint when did this happen in Paul's life, where he, after he got saved, he says he was alive, which means he was spiritually alive. He had received the gospel. Yeah. After he was alive, it says that the law came and slayed him. Okay, slayed right. him means he felt like he had lost his grip on life. God never lost his grip on him, but he felt like he was um, abandoned because of his failure to please God. And he sees this struggle as a, as a deeply seated internal one. Look at verse 15. So starting in Romans seven fifteen, he says, for that, which I, I do, I allow not for what I would that do I not, but what I hate that I do for then if I do that, which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then it is no more that I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing for to will is present with me. But how to perform that which is good, I find not for the good that I would do not, but the evil which I would not that I do. So, I mean, this is like schizophrenic back yeah. and forth, you know, it's like, whoa, poor Paul. And yeah. I think that most Christians can sympathize with this. Once we all we, can. Yes. yes, absolutely. So let's look at verse 20. Now, if I do that, I would not. It is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, 
which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. Now, in Galatians, he says they were going through something very similar. Some of the same wording mm. that's used here, he uses in Galatians, and he says that they be they began in the spirit. He says, since you have begun, you know, to you know have a relationship with God through the spirit, you got saved by the Holy Spirit coming into your life. Are, are you now trying to become complete mm. through the law? Doesn't make any sense. But that's exactly mm. what a lot of people think of the Christian life as. It's like you get started with the spirit, you get started with grace, but then it Fall. switches to law. It's all about yeah. the law. And he said, no, no, no. Now, of course, Paul had a lot of things to say about ruling over your sin and mortifying your flesh. But in Paul's mind, doing that was about diligently keeping grace at the forefront of your mind. Are we having communion with our Savior every day? And are we looking upon him as a loving father who redeemed us? Or are we looking upon him as a taskmaster who's going to whip us and lash us if we don't comply? And, and, and that is something that definitely a lot of people struggle with in the Christian life. They wouldn't necessarily deny eternal security. Now, I think the Galatians may have lost their faith in that. I think it's, it's definitely uh, possible, if not mm -hmm. likely, that they started out understanding grace and eternal security. And then later on, because of the Judaizers, they now thought that faith wasn't enough. We have to have faith plus works. Okay, so in, in their case, it seems that they may have doubted their salvation and thought, okay, well, we're, we've not done enough. Okay, we've got to do more. And so then it became a workspace system. But even though a lot of people may still hold on to the idea of eternal security, they still in their Christian life become so workspace where they get burnt out and they don't seem like happy Christians anymore. And we've seen this in, in church experience, okay? Different <laughs> so churches, but so many people. It's like, I've got to attend every church service. And, and, and I have got to work myself to the bone every single time there is a ministry event. And I've got to do these things because if I don't, then I'm not a spiritual Christian. Right. And, and that and, comes from their leadership. Yeah, well, and absolutely right? it does. And so, so I'm saying there's this burden that's been imposed upon people. Yep. And so it puts the works first and the grace last. The grace is hardly ever talked about. If that's any. Right. And so these are churches where, you know, historically Baptist churches, mm -hmm. like they have affirmed eternal security. There are exceptions, but in general, traditional Baptists believe in eternal security, but they have become in many cases, extremely legalistic. Yes. And so people feel powerless to live a Christian life, they can't keep up with the itinerary. They can't do enough. Their pastor keeps laying on them more and more. And not just their pastor, the preachers that they listen to, the books that they read. Yep. And it's just this, this systemic burden right. uh, among evangelicals. And, and, then, and then they see all the sinning that's going on. Like once they get in close into the church and into the, into the, um, the core members of the church, they end up seeing all these people that are just really not acting like, like, like Christians. Yeah. And, and are just awful. We've seen that ourselves. Yes. And, right? and what's ironic is in those situations, you would think that the law, like a lot of people would think more, more law, yes. know, more shaming would result in more compliance. But what it actually no. does is it separates people into two tribes. Yes. The tribes are the broken ones. Who's, who feel like a failure. Yes. And then there are the other ones who think they're better than everybody else because they comply. I just had a conversation online a couple of days ago with this guy from my childhood. And 
he just came out. It was me and actually this this girl who was having the conversation with him online, and I chimed in and like, don't throw away Jesus because of Christians. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because yeah. he, he just he he got burned. Like, Absolutely. You know what I mean? Because there's like, a man. lack of grace. It's yes. You know Jesus. We often what do you call this? It, there's something psychological. Is it transference where you you transfer? something from one person to another yeah. when, when there's, there's a complete disconnect there. All right. So these Christians who are legalistic and they're imposing law on people, that's not Jesus. That's not that's grace, right. but they shift that on to Jesus and they think, okay, well, this is what grace is mm-hmm. because of Christianity. And this is what grace is. Then, uh, you know, I don't know if I want that. Right. That's right. And so a lot of them will leave. Walk away. They there's the backbiting. He said about the Galatians that for all their attempts to become righteous for the law, he says, take care. Yeah. That you won't devour each other. Yeah. So all the law did nothing but make things worse. Yeah. And so whenever we're thinking about sanctification, even in churches where people will hold eternal security, you know, there, there's this tendency to just put law front and center. And I have thought this way myself before. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't think that I, I meant anything by it. It was just the way I'd been taught. I thought you're saved by grace. Then afterwards, it's work, work, work. Now, if you fail to work, I still believed in eternal security, but it was like God was constantly on his throne looking upon me, and it I was being circumspected all the time. And it wasn't a father who was mm. trying to encourage me and, 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 you know, lift me up and help me. You know, that's what we see in John 15, you know, the the vine dresser, he lifts up the vine. Okay. When it says, take it away, he's lifting it up. He's putting the believers who are immature. He's putting those with mature believers. He's the discipleship process, a tender relational one, but that's not the way I thought of Mm. it. I thought it's kind of like, all right, you've been saved. You've been baptized. All right. You've begun the Christian life. Here are the rules, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and of course, a lot of the rules that are given are not even in the Bible, right? Those right. are added by churches. Well, yeah. uh, but, you know, e- even then, apart from that, it's like rules, 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 and more rules. And there is a standard for Christian living again. Okay. I'm not, I'm not Seeing advocating, I'm not yeah. advocating for carnal living the quite the opposite, as you'll see, as we continue this study, but the key is how do you prevent carnal living? Do you prevent carnal living by creating all of these um, limitations of law, creating these fences? Or do you ensure that people will not live carnally by preaching grace? Preaching grace. People will say, oh, you, people are just going to take that and they're going to run with it. Mm, you heaven know? forbid. Heaven, right? You know, we can't teach grace because yeah. then people will sin all the time. Right. And that's the exact opposite of what Paul teaches. Exactly he's, right. He's like, guys, I know this is counterintuitive, but sometimes God teaches us counterintuitive things. His wisdom mm-hmm. is not ours. You know, his thoughts are higher than ours. Yep. But the idea is grace, far from encouraging carnality, it discourages it. So if you tell people, look, you're accepted. You're accepted because of Jesus. And if you fail, okay, it's not that there are consequences, but if you fail, you're still the father's son. That's right. You're still a child of God. Mm -hmm. And and we're not going to question your salvation. We're not going to impose on you that burden because Jesus has taken the burden away. That frees people for service. And so again, our sanctification, it has to be grounded in our justification. And, And we shouldn't put the cart before the horse. And so many churches, they... They do that. They don't properly understand the difference between justification and sanctification. And they actually conflate the two to where they're not distinct at all. So people think, all right, well, 
I won't really be justified if I'm not sanctified. And so even these churches that will, they'll mm. somehow manage inconsistently, but somehow manage to say, oh, we believe in justification by grace alone through faith alone. But, and it's like, but the, but everything that comes after that contradicts what you just said. Uh, my, oh, yes. my wife's dad, my, my father-in-law, he would always say uh, to Katie growing up that everything that comes after the, but cancels it out. That's right. It shows what you really believe. And so when preachers get up there and say, yeah, you can't lose your salvation, but it's like, oh, here we go. No, don't do the but. That's law. You're imposing law. And again, there is a standard for Christian living, but you're not going to get people to comply to it through effort and through fear mongering. There's so, a reason why the, 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 the law, the Ten Commandments, the law was never, we were, nobody was ever able to keep it. Nobody. And that was the point. Mm -hmm. Right. So, and great. And that's okay. That's what we're going to look at now in chapter yeah. eight, because he goes on and he talks more about this. Um, Verse number one of chapter eight, there is that, sorry, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, mm -hmm. God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that righteousness, the righteousness of the law, might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. So there's two ideas here. And I think that sometimes uh, interpreters, they try to um, separate them too much. Mm -hmm. But when he talks about righteousness in verse four, some people think the righteousness of the law being fulfilled in us is practically. Okay. And, and other people think righteousness of the law fulfilled in us is talking about justification, right? So there are people who will interpret this sound expositors but they'll look at this and some will say, well, righteousness here is forensic. Okay. It means you have a good standing with God now. So that's what happens when you believe. And others would say righteousness here is uh, practical, like living a holy life. But I think that what Paul's trying to say, okay, is that properly having one in your mind leads to the other. That if you understand that you've been accepted by Jesus, not by the law, but by grace through faith, that frees you to truly be righteous. Now, it may seem from a human perspective to be risky to say, look, sinner, I am going to save you for free. Okay, so it's completely by grace and not by works. So that means if you were to not work, okay, and that's actually what I'm telling you what to do right now, don't work then it wouldn't matter. I'm still going to give you the gift. It's by faith. And again, a lot of people would say, man, that's too risky because if you tell people they don't have to do anything, then they're not going to do anything. But that's not the case. Right. I mean, think, think about um, um, Noah or anybody from the Old Testament that were righteous. Mm -hmm. You can't tell me they didn't sin and didn't, you know what I'm saying? Yes, yeah. Like they they were still, I mean they didn't have Jesus, but they had that future they were still looking considered faith, yeah. righteous. Mm -hmm. And so what could they do to not be You know what I mean? Am I getting my thought out? Um they well, couldn't I, do anything to be not, not to be righteous. I mean they could, but they could. You know, yeah, I see what you're saying. Okay, so so absolute righteousness. Right. Okay, that again that's the what's called forensic righteousness. Absolute righteousness is received 
whenever you believe, okay? And I think Paul is definitely saying that. He's already said that before in Romans, yes. but that's included here for sure. Um, for example, Lot. Lot, we were talking about him today at CLC. He's a carnal Christian. Yes, okay? absolutely. What, we won't talk about his story right now. Right. It gets kind of dark, but the point is, in Second Peter chapter 3, he is called, or it's maybe chapter 2, but he's called a righteous man. Right. And you're like, what? No, he wasn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Peter... Yeah. Peter, I'm not going to argue with Peter. He said he was a righteous man, okay? And even though we can look at Genesis and see the sin of his life and how he made so many compromises living in Sodom and eventually it rubbed off on him, um, and we see how things turned out, not just with his wife, but also after with his daughters, okay? It's it's a pretty messed up he situation. He pulled out of there. Yes, he did, right. okay? And, and Peter's point is that even though Lot was a carnal man, Lot was still righteous mm -hmm. and he was righteous because salvation's by grace through faith. But again, uh, a lot of people think that if you emphasize that too much, then it leaves no room for mm. practical righteousness, like for actually making changes in your life. But again, that is the opposite. That's the counter, the counter intuition of the whole thing that if you let go and you let God, I know some people don't like yeah. that, but if you let go and you let God by saying, God, if I fail, you will still love me. God, if I fail, I'm still accepted by you. That kind of thinking empowers someone and fills them with a gratitude that will lead to fruit in their life. And the mm. fruit won't be forced. Right. It will come naturally and smoothly as a result of being filled with gratitude. Yeah. And so that's the thing. We have to preach we have to teach as Christians and, and encourage one another, not even like teaching in a formal setting, just encouraging each other. We have to encourage one another with this basic truth that we are redeemed freely. And when we do that, when we say, are you thankful today that you're saved? Mm. Are you thankful that no matter what you do, you are still in his hand? Mm. And when someone understands that, they can't help but be thankful. That's right. And that thankfulness, I mean, how many jerks, let's just be honest, how many jerks have we known? Some really rude people that are generally not kind. When something goes really well in their life and they have something to be thankful for, it ends up becoming contagious. You know, you'll be like, that person's usually grumpy. That person's really angry, but something really awesome happened. And now they got some pep in their step. Mm. Okay. So if you as a Christian want pep in your step, you need to be in the word of God every day, not saying, okay, you know, what list of rules has God given me today? You should be in the word of God every day thinking about, redemption, mm -hmm. what God's already secured for you, what hope he has in store for you in the future. And then whenever it tells you to love your neighbor, to love your brothers and sisters, to gather together, this is something that you're going to eagerly want to do. Right. It's not going to be something that you drag your feet and do. You're not doing it kicking and screaming. You actually want to do Absolutely. it because grace comes first. Like yeah. I love hanging out with y'all. Yeah. I, I love, you know, now I'm excited about doing ministry, like talking to yeah. the Jehovah's Witnesses. There was a time where to me, it was like, okay, if I do it, I feel better because, you know, I did something for God. Yeah. yeah. But it was almost like I wanted God kind of to get off my back. Like God said, go tell people about me. And so I went and did it. And I'm like, okay, good. I did it today. You know? Yeah. And, and it wasn't like I was eager to go to the next person. It wasn't like I was looking forward to the next opportunity. It was, I did it. So now I can feel good about myself for a little while. Right. And it was just a thing to do. But now 
I look forward to having those conversations. Yeah, obviously, I, I still feel a little uncomfortable, as all Christians do, I think, when I you're having conversations. And the reason that I do is because, oops, uh, the reason that I do is because, you know, there's always that self-consciousness involved. Like, what if I say the wrong thing? You know, I'm, I'm over analytical as it is. Yeah. And, and I want people to know Jesus, but I'm eager to tell them about him because I love him because he first loved me. Yeah. So it's all about that loving relationship. And so people sometimes think less love would do you better, you know, more fear. Right. But that's not the case. So let's keep reading. We've got some other passages. Uh, we'll move on now to a couple. Uh, let's see. Let's do Titus. Okay. Titus two. Ooh, some of my favorites, actually. I like Titus. I like the pastoral epistles. Mm. Probably out of all Paul's letters, I like them the most. Um, so in chapter two, verse 11, this one's really key because again, it, it opens up right with the grace of God. Grace, 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 grace. So in Titus two eleven, it says for the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men teaching us. Notice that the grace of God teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present world looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of the great God and our savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that we might, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar, a peculiar people zealous of good works. So works are clearly part of this, but where does it start? It starts with the grace of God. The grace teaches us. We look for a blessed hope. He gave himself that he might redeem us. And then in verse 14, that we might be pure and peculiarly, a uh, peculiar, well, spit Pick it up, that right. word out, peculiar people, zealous for good works. So it all starts with grace. Grace teaches us, not law. But unfortunately, that's the way many preachers go about it. Law, repentance, law, repentance, law, repentance. If you really want to see repentance in a church, preach grace. Don't preach law. Right. And that is what Paul is saying here. Now let's look at one more. Uh, Colossians, and then we're going to go to uh, the words of Christ in a more direct sense. We're going to look at John 15, but Colossians chapter 2, Colossians 2, 6 through 7, it says, As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. Now notice, he says, As ye therefore have received him, so walk ye in him. So how do we receive Jesus? By grace through faith. faith. So he says, as you got saved, now walk with the same thing that you had that brought you into the family. Faith. Now, did works bring you into the family? Mm. No, faith did. And in verse 7, it says, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, as ye have been taught, abounding therein, in that faith, with what? Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. That's it. Thankfulness. Grace. Faith, the same way you got saved is the same way you should be living every single day. When you got saved, what was the first thing that you thought? Mm. Praise God. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. And you probably told somebody about that. Okay. That enthusiasm was something you probably couldn't hide. And I know in my case, when I was six years old and I got saved, I was like, I cannot wait to tell my loved ones in particular mm. because I knew that it would mean so much to them, but it was, it was huge. And so I ran, I literally, 
you know, maybe a little shameful to say this, but I was six years old. I skipped. Not a very manly thing, but I skipped. I was six years old. I skipped to the car. I'm not going to let you live that down. Okay, I skipped. I did, okay? And when I got to the car, I was like, I couldn't talk really well, okay? I was six years old. Uh, I said, I couldn't say Christian. I said Kistian. That's how I said it. But I was like, I'm a Kistian. I'm a Kistian. I was so amped up that I was saved. That's awesome, buddy. And, uh... I, I know that most people who are listening to this, unless maybe you were in a persecuted country mm. where you might be more encouraged or rather the word discouraged would apply there, discouraged to share it because you're afraid, you know, of what would happen as a result. But in a normal setting, when you get saved, you're filled with so much gratitude that you can't keep it in. You, you want to tell people about it. And, that and you have angels that are like rejoicing. Yes, absolutely. Right? And you, it's like I said, it's a, it's a party. Okay, yeah. it, it is a spirit-filled party when you get saved. Yeah. And, um, and that should be every day. Amen. That's every day. And if you have that every day, it's not forced. It's not work. Mm-mm. Not at all. Uh, last passage that we're going to look at, and then we will uh, talk a little bit about the Keswick movement. Because I love this. I, I have not really learned a ton about it up until uh, recently. I heard about it a little bit. And generally, when I heard about it, like in college, it was always negatively presented. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, heretics. In college, like everything's heresy, you of know, course. you're like, it's like those because annoying. They are. <laughs> right. Yeah, mean... Well, honestly, it's like, even if you're not heretical, seminary students are very arrogant. They just are. Yeah. And uh, it's like hall monitors as a kid, the arrogant hall monitor. Like you give the kid that authority and they're just like, I have special authority. I'm better than all these other kids. And so they kind of take it too far. Seminary students are the same way. I was a hall monitor. You were well, no, you know, no, it doesn't surprise me. I declare it. I declare it heresy. Yeah. And man, we was just like heresy, heresy. It was like knee jerk reaction. And so as I've studied it, I'm like, wow, I like this. I yeah. like it. And I can see why some would call it heresy uh, because of the people who are doing the name calling. Like I, just because of their theology, I can understand why they'd have a problem with movement. But you'll see what I'm saying in a minute. So in John chapter 15, we're going to look at verses four and five. This is the the parable of the vine. Uh, Jesus is talking to believers here. Judas is not present when he says these words. So these have no application for unbelievers. But John 15, four and five, he says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can ye except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, ye can do nothing. Mm. Now he's talking about sanctification here. You cannot do a single thing. Now there are things that I want you to do, but you can't do any of them unless you abide in me. Now when does the abiding start? Well, there are differences of opinion about this. Uh, Some people think that abiding is a completely separate thing from getting saved. They'll say like you get saved, it's a free gift you believe. And then afterwards, you're encouraged to abide. Uh, that's like, you know, starting getting into the word of God, praying and, mm. and abiding would be more of a sanctification thing. But I think that God, I think that uh, when, when you get saved, I think that faith is precious to God. Even as, as small as faith in Jesus may seem as Christians, like we may say like, oh, we're way past that. Like believing in the cross, mm. believing in the resurrection. We're way past that, okay? Mm. But when when a person is a baby Christian, okay, when kids do little things, you cheer them. If adult did it, it wouldn't be very special, right? Mm. But the kid did it, and so it's special, 
right? If a kid draws me a stick figure and my child's like three years old, that is something. It's amazing. Okay. But if they're 20 years old, I'm going to be like, and I might laugh. Okay. So maybe a little harsh. Not a very good. Maybe a little harsh, but I mean, it's like, okay, you could do better than a stick figure. Come on now. All right. So anyways, the point that I'm trying to make is uh, when we first get saved, that faith that we exercise initially is so precious to, to God. We're abiding in him right then. Mm. Apart from church attendance, uh, apart from, you know, a prayer life, uh, apart from scriptural devotion time, apart from any of that, we're already abiding in him. He's pleased with us. And I think that he gives us what you might call. Okay, it's very appropriate. A grace period. Okay, mm. he's not he's not as stern with the babies. Okay, and he even he even shows us that in this chapter. Look at um, let's see if I can find it here. Verse number two: Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. Now a lot of people think taketh away. That's referring to you know pulling it out and throwing it into the fire. That's talked about later. So that's not what's being referred to here. Taketh away means actually to lift it up. Okay, to, to lift up and to bind to those branches that are already producing fruit. Uh, I'm not an expert in viticulture, but I've been told that, you know, if you got a sagging branch and you pin it up and you attach it to a vine that's already producing, then it will, it will encourage that vine that was sagging to produce. So it doesn't say here that, well, that branch, that new believer wasn't bearing fruit. So it was ripped out and thrown into the fire. That's how a lot of people almost seem to be. It's like, look, you better watch out. You're a new believer, but you come into this household and there's a big standard. You better get to work. Okay. It's not like that. Whenever you first get saved, you're abiding in him. Um, he's very patient with you. You're young. You're a new believer. He doesn't expect a whole lot of you. Whenever you are not producing a lot of fruit, it, you're not expected to produce a lot of fruit at first. You need to be, you know, brought by the side of these people to disciple you. And if you start sagging and you're discouraged and you're not producing that, you need to have someone come alongside you and lift you up and, and talk with you about grace and talk with you about the Christian life. So I think that um, it's not like abiding is a secondary thing that it's like a step process. I get saved, then I abide. I think that abiding begins immediately when you get saved. I think that someone, when they get saved, is filled with the Holy Spirit. And we'll talk more about that, maybe not tonight, but there's a difference between being indwelt and being filled, and this is part of the Keswick movement. They make a difference. I agree with that. Paul talks about being sealed with the Holy Spirit when you first get saved. But then he talks about Christians continually being fulfilled with or filled with the Holy Spirit now. Uh, so that is a, a secondary experience, but it's not a second thing as if, okay, I get sealed, and then after so many weeks of effort or work or, you know, after some mystical experience, then I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. I think that it all happens at the same time. However, you can't lose the sealing of the Holy Spirit, but can you lose the filling of the Spirit? Yes, you can. The filling mm. of the Spirit refers to the empowering of the Holy Spirit as we put grace at the forefront of our mind. Um, that is something that we can lose if we are not thinking about grace and we're not mortifying the flesh by doing that, then the Holy Spirit while present in our life is not filling us up. Filling us up refers to an abundant life. We can only have that as we are renewing our minds and as we are thinking about grace on a daily basis. So that filling of the Holy Spirit we'll talk more about in a minute, but I think that one thing that we can take away from John 15 is that new believers, they're already abiding in Christ. The, the key is to continue to remain in Christ. So now you've been brought into the family. There's nothing that's going to remove you from the family. But when you're brought into the family, when you're adopted, 
you know, God is going to teach you how to be a Christian now. And part of that is, you know, relationships with other believers. Okay. But you've started out this Christian life as having fellowship with God. You don't have to do anything additionally to get that fellowship. Okay. You already got it. Now, if time goes on and you are lazy and you're not diligent to put Christ first in your life by constantly reminding yourself of that grace that he's shown you, then you will cease to abide with him. Okay. That will happen. But notice it, it doesn't say here that the branch that beareth not fruit is, isn't abiding. Okay. In, in verse number four, he talks about abiding and it, it mentions in verse number six, moving on. If a man abide not in me, he's cast forth as a branch. So, so I, I think that, uh, failing to abide, um, is something that it doesn't, I don't think that it's something that happens immediately. Immediate. Um, I think that it's, it's letting your guard down. And new believers, when they come into the household, they're already on good terms with the Lord. They've been saved, of course, but they're in fellowship with him. And he's, he's so joyful to have them as part of his family. And he wants them to be matured and, and developed in their faith. But uh, if they don't do that, okay, if people don't come alongside them, if they don't take, you know, I don't want to say effort, it's not really effort, but the, the decision, the initiative to think about God every day, to praise him, to think about him, just to take joy from his love. If you're not doing that, if you get distracted by other stuff, you know, the love of God isn't, you know, your priority anymore. It's more of, you know, other people and other things, then you are in danger of not abiding. All right. That, that's going to happen. Okay. I don't know when. It doesn't mean that you're not going to be saved. Yes, absolutely. I'm, I want to clarify that. You're still saved. Okay. Yes. Absolutely. All right. That, I, I, no I, question I, about that. But I want to I go back to verse number two, though. Please. Yeah. What is it? Where, where you said about where it says he takes away, it doesn't really mean he takes away. Yeah. The, the taketh away in Greek, uh, that's one possible rendering, but given the flow of the passage here, it would seem out of place for him to say, taketh away in like a judgment sense, like a disciplinary sense. Cause e- even when we're getting down later to verse number six, and it's talking about the branch being cast forth, that's not talking about hellfire. Okay. That's talking about chastisement. The reason we know this is because he's talking to believers Right. These are people that have already been made clean. It says in, uh, let's see, verse three. Now ye are clean through the word which I've spoken unto you. They've already been saved. All right. And so since we have ample support from elsewhere in scripture that you can't lose your salvation and fire does not necessarily refer to hell. People right. will say it does, but it doesn't necessarily. Um, we shouldn't assume that it's referring to hell. In fact, we should assume the opposite. He's talking to believers. So this is talking about chastisement, but he doesn't get to that until verse six. So in verse number two, when it says taketh away, Okay, again, we have to, you know, keep things in context, recognize he's not dealing with that thought yet. And when you look at the Hebrew or not Hebrew term, sorry, Greek term. Yeah, the Greek, it's uh, too, too, uh, implication to take up or away figuratively to raise. Yes. Okay. So it can be, it can mean take away. It's not wrong, but take it away. What does it mean? Okay. In context, it's take it away from the ground. It's sagging low. It's being brought up. Taken away just means it's lifted from one place and moved to another. Okay, now people will assume that take it away is negative, ominous. It's taken away to judgment, but it's not. Yes, it's taken right. away from a position where it's sagging low and it's brought up, up through encouragement and discipleship. And if that does not result in the production of fruit, then that would be a failure to abide. Mm. Okay. And when that happens, 
that's when the branch is removed. Got it. Okay. And when it's cast out, it withers and eventually it's thrown into the fire. And that would refer to, um, I believe loss of life for the believer, um, or loss of rewards at the judgment seat, you know, works definitely. being burned up. It's definitely bad. All right. Definitely loss of rewards, right? Yes. I mean, at the very, at very least. least, it could be loss of life, but at the very least, a loss of rewards. And it refers to discipline in this life too, no doubt. Okay. Right. Whatever form that takes. I think of Saul. I think Saul was a believer. Sure. Uh, Saul in the old Testament, he was afflicted, not possessed, but he was afflicted by yeah, that evil spirit. He yeah. was overcome with melancholy depression and his life was cut short. Yeah. Um, and all of that was God's discipline on him. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't think that Saul was, um, I don't think he was an unbeliever. I think he was a believer that experienced failure and that failure had consequences. Mm-hmm. But again, even in the life of Saul, God was patient with him and gave him multiple mm-hmm. chances. Okay. So it didn't happen overnight. And again, that's what a lot of people seem to think about God. Like once you get saved, it's all law now. And if I don't comply, then I'm going to be punished. But God's very patient with us. And um, the relationship he wants us to have is an abiding relationship. Even the term itself, abide means to like, be here with me, be with me. Are we with Jesus? Mm. Now, in a sense, he indwells us and he's never going to leave us, but you know, someone can, you know, um, imagine this, you can be in a family, you can live in the same house, but are you fellowshipping with each other? Are you sitting around the dinner table? Are you laughing or, you know, are you sharing memories? Are you, you know, enjoying one another's company? Are we doing that with Jesus? If we are fruit will naturally result. Amen. Okay. The company that we have with Christ will be contagious. He's good. He's loving. He's righteous. That will be reflected in our life. If that's the kind of time we spend with him. Um, so that's what John 15 is about. And that's why I think this is one of the key passages. And in that article that I gave you, and we won't get to it tonight, but in that article, it talks about how uh, John 15 is a key because it's not about us producing fruit. We often talk about that. It's not us producing fruit. We are branches of the vine. Mm -hmm. So who produces the fruit? The vine does. Yeah. Okay. The branches simply bear it. So who's really doing the work? It's Jesus through us. Now, that doesn't mean we just sit in a chair and we just sit there, you know, and buy more lay our head down on the Bible by osmosis. The Bible just, you know, you know, seeps into our brain. It's not right. like that. OK, so it does require diligence. But what are you trying to do? Are you saying, OK, here's the list of works that I have to pursue? Or is it today I need to talk to Jesus and I need to think about him and I need to think about what he's done for me? And um I need to just bask in his love. And I know that may, may sound, you know, very mushy, gushy, emotional, but it is. I mean, it absolutely is. Like if you read Paul's letters, how can you not come across, um, you know, the emotion of the man, you know, in particular, like he is like, I have been redeemed. I've been saved. This is what I once was. This is what I am because of Jesus. And he says, uh, in, uh, second Corinthians three, five and six, he says, we look upon the face of the Lord. And as we do that, as we just look at him, we're transformed from glory to glory. It's like, are you looking upon Jesus's face? Are you looking upon his compassion and his mercy and his love and his majesty? And if you're doing that, you're going to be wowed by it. It's like this. Um, Have you ever been to a concert where you've never heard this person's music, but you were invited and the music was just phenomenal? Okay. It was amazing. Mm. What did you probably do as soon as you left the concert? I looked it up. You looked it up and you wanted to listen to more of their stuff. Yeah. You wanted to get more of it. Mm-hmm. Was that a chore? No, you were eager to look it up. Yeah. And so when you ask yourself, when you're living for Jesus in your life, okay, if you're a Christian and, and you want to live for Jesus, 
do you see living for Jesus as work to be done? No. Is it a job or is it a privilege? Mm. And if it's a job, then you're probably legalistic. Right. And you need to get back to grace. Okay, so um, just some statements here that I wrote down. Sometimes when I have time to write it down, I put my words together a little better. But to live acceptable lives as believers, we must first recognize that we are already fully accepted apart from works. That's a key. So we have to remember our justification. Also, it's not just the justification necessarily happens before you're sanctified. Obviously, like you can't get sanctified until you're first saved. So this question of sanctification that we're discussing tonight doesn't even pertain to you if you're not saved. So please receive Jesus as your savior if you're listening to this. It's a free gift. But as far as Christians are concerned, justification shouldn't just be a past event. It should be a current event. It's like, that expression that we use in English, putting something at the forefront of your mind. It should be psychologically present to you every day. It's sad that if you were to ask some Christians, have you thought of your salvation today? Mm. What would they say? Mm. I would be really interested in the poll. Have you today thought about the fact that you are redeemed from your sin and you're going to heaven when you die? And if they answer no, okay, maybe we'll just say it was a busy day, okay? But if someone is going multiple days of the week and they are not thinking about their salvation, there is definitely going to be failure in their life. They're going to either be one of two things. Okay. They're going to be carnal. Yeah. Okay. Or they're going to be really legalistic. Hmm. They're going to be really arrogant because they're not thinking about their salvation. Huh? They they don't think they're thinking they don't have to think about it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because they'll think that, well, I got this all in hand. Um, Okay, so I already said this one that I wrote down. Um, we should not conceive of sanctification as things to do, but a Savior to know. And uh, another thing that I wanted to point out, and this one, obviously, I think it goes without saying if you've been listening to me, but justification does not guarantee sanctification. Okay, so getting saved okay, does not guarantee that one will continue to abide. That's clear in Scripture. I mean, the Lord in John 15 is saying, do it abide in me. And there's a danger of you not abiding. And this is what will happen if you don't. So this is all something that lordship people would, they'd have to re reconstruct this text almost to justify their view because lordship people, reform people, they believe in perseverance of the saints. So they think if you don't abide, like these people that don't abide and are cast Mm. into the fire, they do not believe they're saved. So it's like, it's it's holding the disciple's salvation in question when he's already answered the question. He's already said, you're clean, you're saved. I'm making that statement. When he's speaking to them and saying, you're clean, but there is a possibility of you not abiding. And if you don't abide, then this will be the final result. So the only two views that that text permits are either you're saved, but you can cease to be saved, or you're saved, but abiding is something different. It's mm-hmm. not just about being saved. It's also about continuing in your faith. And if you don't continue in your faith, if you don't continue to abide in fellowship with me, then there will be consequences, but you're still saved. Those are the only two views that the text permits. Um, that's one of the reasons why I was so um, I was so attracted to free grace when I first uh, heard of it senior year in college was because I noticed this inconsistency and I didn't even think. I didn't even consider because of the way my mind was been, I guess, baptized by lordship thinking. I didn't even consider 
that when he talks about the fire and the branches, that that may not refer to hell. I just assumed that it did because everybody said that it must refer to that. So I was like, okay, well then these people, they proved that they were never saved in the first place, but Mm. I was never comfortable with that because I thought that doesn't seem to fit the text. I mean, he literally said that they were clean. Yeah. He said that they were in the vine. How can you be in the vine and not be saved? Right. That just doesn't make any sense. So I was like, "Mm, this is making me kind of uncomfortable because I'm running out of options. The reformed option doesn't seem to make any sense. Well, I know that you can't lose your salvation because the Bible says you can't. I mean, read John six, whoever comes to me, I will no wise cast out. I will raise them up on the last day. So I'm like, Jesus can't be saying that. So the, the free grace position is the only position that honestly takes this data in scripture and, and reconciles it in a way that is faithful to the plain sense. Um, all right, so we will next week, just to kind of give you a, a taste of what's coming, we're going to talk about the role of fear in sanctification. Because after all that I've said, you may think there's no room for fear, but the Bible talks a lot about the fear of the Lord. But what does the fear of the Lord mean? There is a fear that is healthy, yes. and there is a fear that is unhealthy. Okay. Jill, I, I know this because you're my cousin, all right? Wendy, okay, she threatened to spank me, and I knew that she meant business. Okay, I'm, I'm pretty sure you've probably been spanked, okay? Yeah. So there is a fear that comes with being a child and knowing that even though your parent loves you and unconditionally accepts you, if you push them too far, get the smack down. then you're going to get the smack down. Okay. Now, does that fear immobilize you? Does it petrify you to where you don't even want to be in the same room as your parent? Mm. Now, maybe if you're super guilty of doing something wrong, but on a daily basis, do you look at your parent as a source of terror? No, you don't. No. You don't. So there's a healthy fear and an unhe- unhealthy fear. And I want to talk about that next week. And then we're going to talk about Um, the filling of the spirit and how that's different from the baptism of the spirit. A lot of people confuse the two uh, because this, this whole Keswick theology, it was Keswick. Yeah. Thank you. Man, I just showed my Americanness right then. Um, Keswick. Yeah. So the Keswick theology, uh, it comes from 1875. There was a movement that uh, started in England, Keswick, England, Keswick, England, and it has two major branches. And, This has to do with the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the filling of the Spirit. You got one branch over here that's super Pentecostal, and they actually are very, uh, I would say, works-based, okay, because they believe you can lose your salvation. That's not the kind of Keswick theology that I'm advocating. Um, The other branch is a different one, and it would include people like Schofield, um, Hudson Taylor, um, Billy Graham, and there are others who are in this line. Mm. These are people who believe in eternal security. Right. And so you can see that these two streams disagree on a pretty major point, but yet somehow they're united under this umbrella Keswick theology. And so I'm going to explain how they have something in common. And it all has to do with the idea of a second blessing, the second blessing of the Holy Spirit. Um, and that idea has been misunderstood. So I want to go to scripture to talk about it. I don't want to do all that in one night. And then we're going to talk especially about Hudson Taylor next week. Hmm. Um, Hudson Taylor, uh, missionary, Chinese missionary, Chinese, yeah. you know, British missionary to China. And I, I read his 
not this whole book, but I read some of his writings this week as I was preparing for this. And one of the verses that delivered him from his fear of failure was the same verse that delivered me. And I didn't come upon it because I read of Hudson Taylor. It was just my own scripture reading. Hmm. And it's second Timothy two thirteen, And he said, this was the key to being delivered from his fear of failure. And it is, if we are faithless, he abideth faithful. Hmm. And so we're going to talk about how that plays into sanctification. And then lastly, I think that it would be nice to wrap it up with a hymn. We're not going to sing the hymn, but I'm going to share it with you because there was a very famous member of the Keswick movement and his name was Francis Havergal. I hope I'm pronouncing his last not name right. Anything. Um, he was also part of the Keswick movement. I know, I'm just reading. Different stream though. And so we're going to look at a hymn or two that illustrates Keswick theology. And so anyways, hopefully um, you're looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to it. And I think that'll be it for tonight. God bless. Thank you for listening.